The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. I'm so thrilled to be able to share with you this conversation with Mira Jacob, author of the novel The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing. She writes in many places like the New York Times Book Review, Vogue, Glamour. But the conversation we have today is very specifically about her graphic memoir, Good Talk Thanks, a memoir in conversations. Mira came over to my apartment when we were still able to do that. And she sat on my couch and I sat on the floor looking up at her. And we had the most incredible conversation. Her book is like nothing I have ever read. You get into it so quickly because of the arresting nature of these images. And at its heart, it's a conversation between a mother and her son, but it's an exploration of family, of race in America, what it means to live in this country post 9-11, particularly as a person of colour. I'm so pleased I can share this with you, especially at this time. I mean, the world will never be the same post this coronavirus. And um, if you can hear sirens in this introduction, it's because I live relatively close to a hospital and the constancy of that sound is obviously making me more and more fraught and anxious. But we're just thinking of all those people who are doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and people that working in hospitals. Sending a lot of love to everyone at the moment. I really think this conversation will be a bit of a balm for the times and I really hope you enjoy it. Mira Jacob is on the pod, finally. Uh, She's in my tiny apartment in Brooklyn. She's on the couch and I'm on this little pod. So if you hear the kind of crinkling like that. It's me rustling around. There may be some trucks and things, but, um, you know, it's all part of the ambience. I love that a truck showed up on cue for that. It was like, here's how a truck works. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're here to talk about your graphic memoir, Good Talk, a memoir in conversations. And I'd love to ask um, which character you drew first. Oh, that's such a great question. I drew my dad first. Oh. I drew, um, so my dad has been, um, he died in 2006. And I mean, the very first face that I tried um, out of all the faces in the world, bizarrely, is Joan Rivers. I chose Joan River because I was familiar enough with her face that I knew it, that I would either get it right or wrong. Um but yeah, and so it was kind of low stakes. And then I was like, oh, you should really try. You should really try someone that you care about because that shifts everything, right? It's really hard to see the people you care about, clearly. Like most of the time when I'm talking to my husband, I think of him as like the tiny upper corner of his eye and the arch of his eyebrow. And when um, like times when I'm super attracted to him, I think like I just think of his mouth Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't see all of him anymore. I haven't seen all of him for like 20 years. (laughs) So now when he comes to me, he comes to me in these kind of beats, these abbreviated parts of himself. I should say when I tried my dad, when I I decided to draw my dad, um, one of the last things I remember doing with my dad is he had died and we were in the funeral home and his body was going to be 
taken to be cremated and my brother and I were alone in the room. Everyone else had left. And I remembered, you know, it's really weird when someone dies because they're just not in their body, obviously. And it's such a, it's such a disturbing feeling um, because it looks like them and they're not there, but also they're really just not there. You sense that they're not there um, in a very kind of deep way. But I just remember bending down over his face and I was, and I just had this moment where I was like, you have to forget the smell of this moment because of the formaldehyde. You have to forget the coldness of this moment because of the body's refrigeration. Like you just have to remember that this was your first face. And I put my palms over his cheeks so I could remember what it felt like to cup his cheeks. And I remember feeling like, this is my favorite face though. Like, this is my favorite face. And it was so, um, it was so painful, but that was the last time I had really connected to his face. So then when I started drawing it, I remember it was like at a really high emotional pitch. It wasn't from like a nowhere place. It was just with that feeling of like, what if I get to see him again? Like literally, what if I get to see him again? What if I draw him and I get to see him again? Um, yeah, that was the first one I drew. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to start out. <laughs> it's so this beautiful. It's so beautiful. How did your parents meet? Oh my God, my parents. <laughs> they are so funny. Okay, so my parents met because um, my father wanted to do his residency in America. He wanted to come here to study heart surgery. And his mother literally would not let him leave the country, i.e. would not help him you know, with the funding or anything else um, unless he got married. She said, you have to get married. Because the kind of common wisdom then in India was if you got the, if you got the, the child married to somebody else also from India, they would come back. The children would come home. Which is, by the way, also so sad when I think of it, when I hear it that way, because the truth is, is that's not what happened, not for my parents and not for so many parents' children. Like they made this bet that they would tether their child back to the land that they came from and then all of them left. Um, So my dad was among those people who went and he, okay, so the way they met is they had, um, I think it was my mother's great uncle called and said, there's this boy, he's looking for somebody. And my mother had been interviewing suitors and my mother was super beautiful. Um, So she had many suitors, but her family also gave her a really, really low dowry, like an almost embarrassingly low dowry. Cause I think her father was very worried about somebody marrying her um, for status or for her looks. Like he wanted someone who was genuinely interested in her, which anyway, so I, this is all, by the way, all my relatives have sort of filled in the blanks. They go to meet each other. They were in Bombay. My father came up to meet my mother. And, um, you know, he goes and they to meet her. And all of the relatives, like all of their parents sort of are with them. And they are, there's this great picture of them actually with all of the parents on the couch and my mom on one end and my dad on the other. Um, and they never said anything to each other. <laughs> Like just the families talked. And then when they left, my father said that he was like yelling at his mother saying, you know, I never even got a single, because usually actually they do get to speak alone. Usually they get a little time to talk alone. He's like, I didn't get to say a single thing to her alone. What were you thinking? And she said, well, if you marry her, you'll have plenty of time to talk. (laughs) Which I thought was very shrewd actually of my grandmother. Because I think my father had found a reason to disagree with almost everybody before then. And I think because he just didn't get to talk to my mother, he couldn't even find what was disagreeable about her. You know, she was just this sort of beautiful vision at the end of the couch. My mother's version of this is really funny because she's like, yeah, there were all these boys and they were drinking Campacola and talking about all these big things. But your father wanted to go to America and he was, you know, it was such a passion for him and this heart surgery. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is be such an adventure. And when she first said it to me, I was like, wow, that's so cool, mom. And she goes, yeah, I was young and dumb. (laughs) But bold. But bold. They were both really bold. I mean, it's funny now to think of, even when I was young, we were living in New Mexico and with almost no other 
Indians around us, and even when I was very young, I remember having to wait by the phone on the weekends because the operator would put through the call from India. Like it was that difficult to communicate where you would sort of just stay in your own living room hoping that the call would come through and that would happen once a month or something, once every few months. Mainly there were a lot of letters like airmail mm. and the thin blue paper. That's sort of the hallmark of my childhood is all of those letters and all of the ways in which their parents tried to kind of keep track of them. But they were alone out there. Like they were really alone. It was just the two of them. They didn't know each other before they got married. They didn't talk again before they got married. And then they wrote a couple letters back and forth, but that was really it. And then a month later, after getting married, they got on a plane and went from Rome to London to New York and then to New Mexico. And they were one of three families in the entire state? Yes, this is according to the other two. I should say, like, this is our very highly likely, you know, our reliable it's Census great Bureau. Folklore. But it really is. It really is. That's, you know, because when I said to my mom, I was like, wait, how? Because I've always grown up with, like, we were the third. We were the third here. We were the third. And I'm like, how do we know? And she goes, because the other two. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay, Ma. Um, but it's true. Yeah, we were the third. And then when we were there for a long time, um, it, um, there were not that many Indian families slowly in the 80s. Um, more and more started coming. But for a long time, it was a very, very small community. And there was a trip that you took when you were five back to India that was very formative. And it's so beautifully told in the book, but also, um, you know, very poignant and sad where you were recognizing what you call like, good color. Yeah. When I was five, I mean, we went back, we were lucky um, in that we went back when I was two, we went back when I was five, we went back. And then after I was five, we went back every other year. My parents were really determined to keep connection with their family and they had the financial means to do that. But what that meant is that every time we went back, people would have not seen us for a couple years. So, and we were kids, so we were growing faster. There was always kind of a shock. But when I was five, I guess all my, what they would say in India is all my color came in. So when I was two and they had seen me last, I was sort of like a lighter brown, you know, like tea with milk kind of thing. And then when I came back, I was basically like tea with a lot less milk. <laughs> and they were really um, sad about it. They were just, I just remember there being a sort of like, what happened to her? What happened though? She, but cause they were sort of like, I had, it was sort of like a terrible accident had happened to me. It was like, but she wasn't, she didn't look like this before. No, before she didn't look like this. Because I think this is true of most dark-skinned people. We get darker as we get older. And so, um, you know, I got darker when I was five and darker yet when I was seven and darker still when I was 12. And then also by then I was also, you know, on swim team and spending long hours in the New Mexican sun. And people were just like, why are you doing this? They would say that to my mother. But why are you letting her do this? It's not, you know, she'll lose any color she has, she'll lose it. And so it was like, you know, losing your color, of course, means like you've lost the color we would prefer you to be. So they were very, they were sad about it. They were upset about it. And my parents just tried to kind of, they were like, don't worry about that. That's not, don't worry about it. It's not interesting. Which I realize now is renegade for the time and place that they were born. The idea that they didn't even... They weren't even entertaining the thought of it with me. It wasn't like they were trying to stifle something that they also secretly believed was important because I've definitely had that happen with my parents. We've all had that happen with your parents, right? Like the mother who doesn't want to give you her eating issues but does because she <laughs> has eating issues. It wasn't That wasn't actually my experience of my color with my parents. They genuinely were like, don't pay attention to that. It's not important. It's not anything you need to pay attention to. Um, but nevertheless, it was it was like a pretty active morning um, within my own family of like, oh boy, she'll never be, you know, it's like, she'll, she'll never be pretty. She'll never get married. She'll always be this way. It's like having a liability, you know, for your parents. It's like you have this kind of burden on you now, which is this unmarriable daughter. You start the book out with your son, the conversations with Z. And I'm wondering, because you were about 
five when this, I guess, realisation happens, although I'm sure being one of three Indian families in New Mexico, you were aware of race. But then you open the book with Z being so obsessed with Michael Jackson and his kind of metamorphosis. And what is it about that that's that precious age where it's a curious, in Z's case, he's just curious. Yes. Versus what I'm gathering your experience was, which was really very probably confusing and disconcerting. Right. There's a moment where your curiosity turns to judgment, right? There's a moment when um, probably in, certainly in my life and a lot of my friends' lives where a thing that is just a given about you, like I have brown skin, turns into a judgment because of how somebody reacts to you. And you realize this thing about me that is just nature leads you to believe something about me that now I have to combat or I have to take responsibility for, or I have to run from, or I have to hold with both hands. Like I don't, you know what I mean? Like you've made this thing about my nature, something that I have to deal with now. With Z, he was so funny because he was super obsessed with Michael Jackson. And I think it came from the place of deep, deep fandom of wanting to be like his hero. We know quite a few different things about Michael Jackson now than we did then. I should say, um, or we know them consciously. And with him, it was just like, is he like me? I think he's like me. Are we the same? I think we're the same. Are we? And and because his father was one color and I was another and Michael Jackson was yet another, it was like, who of these three big people in my life am I most like? It's Michael Jackson, right? Um, so it was this kind of, you know, and, and I think because he identified more with Michael Jackson than anybody with the dance and the feeling and the and the kind of the joy of the songs, I think he he was he wanted to twin with him, and so parsing that out with him and saying, you know, Michael Jackson is uh, he's black, so his skin is brown. Um, even just getting to that was so funny because I would say that to him. I was like, well, he's well, you know, he's he's black and you're Indian, and he'd say, no, we're brown, we're both brown, mommy. And I was like, that's true, but when somebody in America is black, you say they're black. And he's like, but his skin is brown. I was like, and his skin is brown. And I'm like, and if you're Indian, you're brown. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. I was like, this is very true. It doesn't. It doesn't. I know it's really funny for like a kid of that age, you asked what it was about them. I just think they're basically, it's like having a benevolent alien that you're in charge of. You know, they come down to earth and they're just sort of like, what is that? Why is skin? You know, just these things that are... Kind of you, and then you find yourself explaining these really stupid systems that you've spent your whole life trying to outgrow, and you're like, "Here's a, here's a cage I'm going to put you in by way of explanation," and it's terrible. There are no good answers. There's nothing that makes sense, and also to keep that childish innocence about him, because that's so often, you know, I will hear white Americans say, like, you know. You, you don't have to talk about this stuff with him. You can, you know, keep like, that's a child and you're the one that's filling his head with ideas, which is a really wild way to not take responsibility for an entire system you've built to oppress us, right? Like if you just don't look at the cage, he won't feel it. That's an incredible fantasy to have. I don't get to actually have that choice. The cage is the cage. I'm either going to tell him what it looks like or I'm going to pretend it's not there. I grew up with parents who pretended it wasn't there, not out of maliciousness, but because I think they were so isolated and they had a lot invested in believing that America was not going to be racist toward them. And so for me, and because I grew up with that and because I knew that growing up with that makes you feel kind of crazy, I definitely had an idea with Z where I was like, no, you're going to tell him. You're going to tell him, you're going to answer the questions he asks as carefully but thoughtfully as possible. And you're not going to be someone who lies to him about race. Around this time, there was also the riots in Ferguson in Missouri over the death of um, Michael Brown, the unarmed teenager. And Z is 
asking about this too, isn't he? Not necessarily. Mm. Well, if it was specifically about that, but why um, like why the newspaper headings are saying what they're saying. Yeah. And these two things intersecting kind of lead to this question that he asks you about his dad. Yeah. He was asking what's happening with Ferguson. And I actually did try the thing where I, um, the first time he asked, I tried to not be so direct about it. I said, oh, those are protests for a boy who was hurt. Um, and I didn't give him any details about it. I said, there was a boy who was hurt and all of these people are here to stand up for him. How did he get hurt? And I said, well, he was shot. And then it was sort of like, you know, and we're going to get on the subway now and you're six and that's about all we're going to cover about that. And then he himself heard on the radio and in the newspaper, you know, just like all the ways that things trickle in. So then he came back with his name was, there was a kid, his name was Ferguson. He was shot because he was brown. And I was like, oh boy, no, his name is Michael Brown. It was in a place called Ferguson. He was black, so his skin was brown. And he said, was he shot by a white police? And I said, yes. And then later that night he said, um, oh, you know, then actually we were on the subway and he goes, he goes, are white people afraid of brown people? And I was like, ah, um, because that's sort of one of those questions that the minute he said it, it's like, you know, if he's 22, you just say like, yep, <laughs> you know, but if he's six and his father is white and his grandparents are white and it's really complicated, you say what I said, which is sometimes. And I said that and it was just, it was the worst feeling to say that because I saw it sort of land where he just, you know, he kind of his brow furrowed. Also, everyone on the subway somehow heard that conversation. It was one of those like questions that like pierces the whole subway car. So everyone was watching us. And everyone heard that answer and everyone looked upset. And I was like, what is the right answer, people? But then later that night when I was putting him to bed, he just, like, as I was tucking him in, was like, is daddy afraid of us? And again, he just said it and not, he wasn't, it wasn't like a precious question. It wasn't like, is daddy afraid of, like, it wasn't that. It was just a, like, what are the facts here? Is daddy afraid of us? I was like, no, no. And I was the one that felt precious about it. I was the one that like had all this emotion in my voice. And I said, no. And I just later, I um, I tucked him in and then I just went and sat in the bathroom and I just couldn't stop shaking. Because it was like, these questions were so guileless. They were just curious. He wasn't trying to undo me, but they were getting at the heart of this very scary thing, which is that my husband and I met and married in an America that we thought was getting better and smarter about race, about talking to each other, about seeing what things really were and calling them what they were. And then there was this, you know, this was in 2015, and there was this veil coming down over the country and all of my friends of color could feel it. Like all of us could feel it. And we were like, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. What you guys are doing are ba is bad. What the way that you can't talk about it is bad. Like this is scary. And all of my white friends, for the most part, I mean, most of them have, thank the Lord, changed by now. But most of them were really of the position of like, you guys are really angry all the time right now. Like... I mean, maybe not everything is so personal. You know, it was that kind of just cluelessness and condescension because they had no idea what we were facing. And then my sweet kid is sort of just putting a, you know, a thumbtack in all of it. It's like, I think it looks like this. I think it looks like you don't know if, you don't know exactly where your white husband stands on things. That wasn't what he was saying to me, obviously. But there was plenty in me already that was like, how much, how much are you picking up on something that I'm terrified of looking at? And so the book is about that. The book is about looking right at the thing that I was most terrified of, which is 
how much, how much can I really trust my white family? Right? Like how much can I trust them to know about us? And how much can I trust them to learn about us? Are they interested or are they not interested? Or do they want to just survive on the fantasy of you are brown, therefore we are open-minded without doing any of the work? I listened to you speak with Maris Kreisman, yes. who's so yeah. fabulous She's on her amazing. podcast, um, The Maris Review, and you spoke about racism and love and how specifically towards your parents-in-law and kind of speaking directly to this idea that um, they can love you so much and love your son and yet that doesn't um, negate any of their racist beliefs. Right. Yes. Because my in-laws, my my father-in-law just passed um, last month and we've talked about it, you know, We've talked about this a lot, um, all of us as a family, but I think even now I would say my my in-laws are very much the um, people for whom they truly believe in a kind of deep way that love is the opposite of racism. Love is the cure for racism. Ergo, if they love me, they can't be racist. Nobody but white people can afford to have that fantasy, honestly. Like, that is a fantasy that takes that takes an internal emotion like love and recasts it as a balm over everything, distorting it to the point where you no longer have to take responsibility for the really horrible decisions you make and the ways in which you oppress and hurt the people in your life who are of color and are not protected in any real way out in the world by your love. I mean, this was something I found myself saying over and over again to my in-laws and my father-in-law and I had many very good conversations, um, you know, before the book came out, while the book came out, after the book came out. And one of the things that I remember sort of saying to him when he said, you know, we just worry about how angry you are. We worry that you've just become a very angry person. And I said, can we talk about stop and frisk in New York? Because he grew up here. He lives in Florida now. He lived in Florida now. Um, Should we talk about stop and frisk? Can we talk about what that looks like in Z's friends' lives? Because these boys are just three and four years older than him. And they're the first to get pulled aside on the subway. They're the first to have their bags checked. They're the first to be treated as though they're criminals. And they're not. And they're just young boys that look like something that America has been taught to fear. They're young brown and black boys, teenage boys walking through the world. And they've been turned into these monsters for that are just, they're just receptacles for everyone's fear. They're not monsters, they're kids. You know, Z, do you think he's a monster? And he's like, no, he's a very good boy. And I was like, he's a very good boy. You are worried about me because you think I'm angry. What you should know is part of the reason I'm angry is because I know at some point he and I are going to have to have a talk where he's run into an authority figure that has decided that he is the thing to be feared and will treat him like a monster instead of a person. And I'm going to have to go back in and put his humanity back together. What enables me to do that is I am so angry that I can see him clearly. I see what he is worth and I'm fighting for him every day. But you should know I am fighting for this person that you love. You love him. So instead of telling me that you're worried about how angry I am, I wish you could understand that that anger is the thing that is saving the thing you love most in this world. That anger is protecting the thing you love most because I can actually see what he's up against. 
And it's a lot. And it was really interesting because when I sort of broke it down that way, I mean, it's not like we had some kumbaya moment. Definitely didn't. But my father-in-law did say, he's like, well, I didn't realize that all that stuff was a problem. You know, I didn't realize that that was still going on. You know, it was just that it was, um, he genuinely doesn't know what it's like to be in a brown or black body. And I said, well, there are ways that you could know. And he said, well, how would I possibly know that? And I said, you could ask me. I'm right here. I don't know that, I don't know what to do about the pervasive fantasy that racism is the opposite of love and that love is the opposite of racism. I don't know what to do with the way that that lets people let themselves off the hook for the real and damaging actions they take all the time. I just kind of keep hoping that if I say it often enough, the people that live in that fantasy, the fantasy place where they're like, and all the babies will be beige and we'll never feel pain again. Just stop it. Just have the decency to stop it and interrupt that thought and rely on something more than their fantasy of themselves to get the rest of us through this life. I know you've also said that you realize that this book won't change people. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it helps. Like, I hope it shifts people's minds. And I hope it has the power to do that. I do think my experience of reading it is that because there's something about the images with the words, there's something that's this, that's, disorienting mm-hmm. in the graphic form of it and the power of those words that breaks through different parts and I think a memoir just written would have. Mm. The choice to draw versus write a yeah. memoir because you're a novelist and such an accomplished writer with words, was it because you didn't know what form could hold this conversation yeah it was because it was really because I was just tired I mean it sounds so weird I was tired so then I taught myself how to draw for three years but it was true I was tired of trying to write an essay I was tired of trying to write I was tired of trying to write a speech I was I saw how that worked out you know in 2015 I did this um speech for a, a publishing event where um I was given the opportunity to write a speech for this kind of young publishing stars um, celebration for Publishers Weekly. And I I took that opportunity to write about what it was like to be a person of color in the industry. And I was really psyched because I, boy, did I practice that speech. And they said it could be 12 minutes and I got it down to eight. And I just felt like I've got this. It is so sharp. It is so good. It is so on. And then when I got to the event, it was like a calamity of things, but you know, the microphones weren't quite right, but also the time where they gave me the speech, everyone was a little bit drunk. And I stood up on a chair to yell the speech out to the room. And I, and I wrote about this later And the room, I just watched the room turn away, like person after person after person, because everyone was a little too drunk and this thing wasn't working and whatever. But honestly, it was definitely about, it was absolutely about whiteness. Cause I could very clearly see the people of color migrating to the front of the room to hear me. And everyone else around them just getting more and more loud and more and more drunk. And no one heard that speech, which I it ended up I ended up publishing it on BuzzFeed the next day. Because, by the way, two like the people that reached out to me about it, it was really wild. Um, it was um three people of color reached out to me about it immediately and were like, We 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 heard the speech, no one heard the speech. Can you can we publish the speech? It was really interesting. And I put it out and it made the rounds, but also I was so aware by that point, like that was the first kind of brush up against it. And I heard people talking, I heard people, you know, chattering about like, it wasn't really about racism. It was about the, you know, it was about the sound system. I feel like whatever way that you try to talk about this, whatever way you try to position things, whatever way in which you try to interrupt the dialogue, people are like, well, it's not really about my racism. It's about any other thing besides how you guys are treated in this space. And I've written essay after essay 
And whenever I tried to write an essay about all the things that are in this book, I just would freeze up. Like I would freak out. And I would imagine people saying to my son what they say to me so regularly. You know, all the texts are not, you know, they, they're just, there's kind of a litany. Whenever I put something up, there's always a, um, you know, there's a comment section under it. And the comment section is basically some version of these are lies. I would have believed if you would have said it a different way, but you didn't. That's how I know this is a lie. And, you know, and I hope your whole family dies. And, you know, there's always some like derailing point after that of like, go back to where, (laughs) go back to your own country, which is really fantastic when you're born here. Um, There's always a way in which those conversations happen and they just spiral and they get more hateful. The reason that I decided to draw this was actually really simple. I'd run out of ways to write about it and believe that anyone would ever pay attention. And I was emotionally exhausted by trying to do that work. So instead of putting all my energy behind creating the exact right sentence to woo the skeptical reader to believing what it was that was happening to me, I was like, I'm just going to draw us. And I'm going to put the conversation right above us and people can read it or they cannot. But they can't stop reading that easily. Like I knew that the first time I drew it, I was like, oh, this is very readable. You just keep reading. You don't even want to sometimes. You're like, I'm done, like, ugh, enough. And then you're just like, let me see what's on the next page. I knew that right away. I'm a reader. I read a lot, obviously. And I understood immediately. I was like, oh, there's something really easy about this about and there was something that was easy for me to do meaning it wasn't easy meaning like oh this is so this is I guess took me no time it wasn't that it was that it wasn't hitting the same level of exhaustion that I had about trying to write an essay like doing it this way made me feel like I could just get to the part I cared about without doing the part that I was exhausted by I could just get to the part where I really showed someone the conversation instead of doing all the positioning I would have to do to make white people comfortable with beating the conversation. The other part of that that was great is that then I could just write it for the people that believed me, that already knew. Like the audience in my brain made a very, a sudden shift to, I'm not writing this for the skeptics. I'm not writing this for the people that just don't want to believe this anyway or don't want to have this conversation or are actively invested in never having this conversation. I'm writing it for the rest of us that live this conversation, that have had it so many times that we don't know how to be anymore, that look at this and recognize what's happening in every beat. And that changed everything as I was writing it. That's why I say, by the way, I don't think this is going to change anyone's mind, this book. I don't think it's going to change their viewpoint because I wasn't, I stopped writing it to change anybody's Mm. viewpoint. Like I just started writing it for the rest of us. And there's so much joy in, in the book too, which is this juxtaposition and even the imagery. There are such difficult things in the book as a white person reading it. You recognize, I'm not going to say you, I recognized myself in the white characters I recognized my dad Mm. in your parents-in-law but it allowed me to really sit with that it was just surprising because I think you know we all think we're the a good one yeah (laughs) yeah and then to really be reminded again and again by the privilege you have by walking through the world feeling safe all the time Yeah. And I also have a level of that privilege. I mean, that's what was hard about writing the book, right? Because you have to own both. If you're South Asian in America, I mean, first of all, I can't possibly categorize all South Asians into the same category because I think it's really wildly different. If you're Bangladeshi, if you're Muslim, I think you're facing really different things than I, an Indian Syrian Christian, am facing. I think those are really different. But also there is just the kind of pan experience of, oh, you're not black, you're this kind of brown that automatically puts you in a different category, right? So there's some level of that where so much of the unpacking I've had to do is also that, is what you were saying, is, wait, when am I safe and when am I taking my safety for granted? 
And when am I not seeing how other people are living? Because I feel okay in this situation, right? And like, what is it to grow up with parents who really didn't want to see the racism? So I was brought up to be like, no, we're totally fine here. We're fine here. It's all fine. But meanwhile, there was the rest of me that was like, I don't, I don't know. mm, Something's not fine. Something's really not fine. Something feels really weird here. Like carving out that space to stand in was maybe the most arduous part of the book, but it was really actually just sitting with my thoughts long enough to let them live. Part of the book that I love so much is the thread of romance throughout. (laughs) You're a romance, Ah! you're a sucker, you're a romantic, yes. And... One of the stories that really struck with me, I mean, this is anti-romantic part of the book, but it leads to more questions, is when your family wanted you to call the neuropsychologist. (laughs) And I I loved it so much. And it's one of the kind of lighter parts in the book, but it obviously has a very dark ending to it. but can you talk about just your aunts, the calls you had from India about this kind of miracle man they thought you'd fa- they'd yes. found for you? Right. Well, they, they found the neuropsychologist and he was at Columbia. My dad, he was a friend. He was a son of my dad's friend. And they wanted me, they were like, oh, you should meet this guy. He's going to be, you know, he's just like you. He grew up here. And I was like, that's really not that much like me, you guys. Um, He's Indian, okay, still not like me. He's a neuropsychologist, again, really not like me. But they they really all believed that this was the answer to all my problems. And they happened to hit me at a particularly low moment because I had been dating this really deeply nice and wonderful person who it just didn't work out with romantically. But, you know, he was just a good person. And... um. And I had broken up with him knowing that it wasn't quite right with us. But then also going through the thing where if you break up with somebody that's nice, it's really much harder than breaking up with someone who's a jerk, right? Because then it's just you. Then you just have to look at yourself and be like, I am in fact a monster with like weird, weird, like I don't even know what I'm made of and I don't know what I'm looking for. And maybe it's impossible. You have all those feelings. Anyway, the neuropsychologist was supposed to be and all of India called me because they were like, this is, you know, he's a nice boy. He's really wonderful. You know, you listen to all your friends about who to marry. Why not? Why not just give it a shot? And I was, I was questioning my own judgment to the point where I was like, why not just give it a shot? So I called him and I left what I thought was a totally normal message. Like, hey, it's Mira. Our parents are friends. Give me a call. And I mean, I did it with so much nervousness, but then also I did it feeling like this could really be it. Like I could have, I could have finally this, like a feeling of real safety, which I do see in my, you know, my friends who have married people within um, their own background and their own race and you know there is a feeling of like they there's a part of it that they get to take for granted and I do think that's still true by the way I see them in other there are plenty of other issues but like there's a part that they just get to kind of that's quiet for them yeah yeah they just don't have to investigate it and um so you know I called and and um and then as you find out in the book he he never called back um, for reasons that, you know, my mother revealed to me later. Um, but it was hard because I think it was, to me, it was also just the idea of there's a perfect person out there for you and it will, and it will be uncomplicated if you can just connect with them. If you can just find them, this unicorn of a human, he will answer all of these questions about your identity. You will live through them together. You will make strong and bold children who know who they are. You know what I mean? Like all of this, the idea of how we could become together like a force, um, how our two kind of unknowings, because I think if you are raised, if you're a child of immigrants, you're raised not knowing so many things about America. And then this idea that like the two halves of us could understand something in a whole way was so seductive to me. 
It's still seductive to me. It's still such a great idea, the fantasy of that, right? The fantasy of that is so profound. And your brother had found that. He had, right. Yeah, my, my perfect brother who remains perfect, who loves math and science and Indian women, um, found this, yeah, he found an Indian woman and they have Indian kids who, you know, it's they're Indian American, of course, but I do, I definitely see like, oh, they don't have the same questioning of their identity, the friction in their identity that my son, who is, you know, 11, you know, so like six years younger than their youngest is is just constantly like, what is this? What is that? You know, and they don't have that because I think there's a part of them that, that just sort of understands who they are in a much less fraught way. One other of my favorite parts is this strange phenomenon that happens when you go home and you see that your parents are acting a little odd, how many years into their marriage? Oh, my God. So I was about 20, I think I was 26 or 27. So, yeah, like 30 years into their marriage. Yeah, 30 years into their marriage. My parents, who had always been, like, cool with each other and interested in each other, totally fell in love. Like, fell in love like Americans. It was very weird that they were really into each other. And they're very giggly. They were, you know, they were teasing each other. They were also just watching each other in this way that I was like, what is happening? This is so uncomfortable. And also I was so happy for them because because you want that for your parents. You want to see them be understood by each other right you want to see them you want to see them grow closer rather than farther as they grow older and it was really amazing to see them grow close what do you think shifted or kind of softened for them to be able to appreciate each other like that I do wonder people talk about this all the time about when you know when the kid is out of the house but I do feel like kids are a real in addition to being their own unit for many wonderful reasons, kids are a real test of a relationship. It's just really hard to be present and kind. And there are so many hurdles that you have to kind of keep getting over. And I wonder sometimes if us being out of the house just enabled them to be like, Oh, you, Oh, now that the, like the fire and the flood have gone, there's you, you know, Oh, I like you. I wonder if it was that. Maybe it was just age. But they were always, I mean, I say that they fell in love and it's true. Like I definitely noticed there was a dramatic shift and my brother noticed it too. And we were both mortified and we were like, what is happening? But also it was really sweet to see and not like sweet in that condescending way that people are like, oh, old people are in love. They're sweet, but like sweet in like a deep and human way where you're like, oh, you're, you are a good human who has fought so long to be in this country and comfortable with yourself. And look, you ended up with another good human next to you. My mom said this thing once before they had fallen in love or what I would say is fallen in love. I don't think my mother would agree with my version of what happened. She would, first of all, she'd just be irritated with it. She'd be like, I don't know about any of that. But I do remember when I was young and I was sort of bemoaning the fact that they weren't in love. I was like, everyone else's parents are in love and you guys are... And I remember her saying this thing to me where she's like, I don't know what this skipping hearts business is. These Americans talk about how they walk into a room and her heart skipped a beat. She's like, my heart has never skipped a beat in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And so she was like, but your father is my spiritual partner in this lifetime. He has moved from one place to me, one country with me to another. He's the only one that knows what it was like to have that one place and to move to this other one. He's the only one that knows. And so we're together. You know, she said this like very kind of, you know, and I was like, oh my God, you are the I didn't yeah, say that then, but so it was really beautiful. like, right? It was really beautiful. It was really sweet. And so it was great to see that matched with a real need to kind of physically be around each other, you know, like 
hug and nuzzle and be right, like right next to each other, you know, and enjoy each other. I saw them really enjoying each other, appreciating each other. And I think that's a really big, I think that has made a really big impression on me. Jed's parents too. My husband's parents too. I mean, we talk about this sometimes. His parents, they um, got engaged after knowing each other for a week and were deeply in love. His dad just passed a month ago, but they were really in love in the way that you would see them together and they were absolutely a partnership and they saw each other as a unit, like an absolute unit. And there is something about that, about growing up with that, that's really, I mean, it's reassuring, it's tethering. It's also just an example of like, okay, so knowing, you know, because I know that my parents fought a lot and knowing that his parents fought a lot, knowing that there's also a way to stay together also feels really interesting and rich to me. Also that there are so many surprises to come. Oh, totally. When you're 60 and falling yes. for each other again. I've seen my parents kind of, ha- I mean, have those moments where they are not great. I mean, my parents were married to other people for mm-hmm. 35 years. Okay. But to see, to witness the kind of undulations. Yes. And to find yourself witnessing the joy that, in each other again. It is reassuring. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I think I always remind myself um, what you said about being surprised. I always think about this because I think Judd is very surprising to me still, which is such a weird thing to say when you've been with someone for 20 years. But it really is like just when I will have given up on an idea, like he's never going to get this, he's never going to change, it's never going to, you know, just something he will suddenly just change the way that he's doing something. And I'm like, who are you? Wait, what? How? You know, what? And it is really, it is kind of amazing to kind of see that and know that that's always a possibility. You know, Um, that that's always a, that you never can really fully know a partner for good and for bad, right? You can be with someone forever and never really know a part of them. And I think there are many parts of him that I don't know. I think there are many parts of me he doesn't know. And the unearthing of those things is sort of continually interesting to me. My last question is, the six-year-old Z, Yeah. and the question he asks that are in the book that are so funny, like the knock-knocks and the fun, you know, when he says gorilla underpants like just the gorgeous things kids say that are truly hilarious what kind of questions is he asking now Mm. oh my god it's so much more complicated now he's 11 he's almost my height (laughs) he has a mustache or as he said when we were walking around he's like I have a double stash I was like what's a double stash and he goes one above my eyes, one below my nose. Oh, it's so gorgeous. (laughs) I was like, oh God, that's true. Um, So what was he, I mean, it's funny because the questions he asks now, what was he saying last night? He was asking me about, um, he asked me about a statement. Hold on, I want to, it's going to take me a second to locate what it was exactly. It was like, um, Oh, right, right, right. He was asking me something about if you notice, if you notice, sorry, that like women aren't, I think it was about the the directors, you know, we just, the, the Oscars just happened. And, um, and he was saying there, there weren't any women directors nominated. If you say women directors weren't nominated, is that sexist? And I was like, no, that's the opposite. And I was sort of like, I had to unpack it with him. Like, why would that be sexist? He's like, because you're saying that women aren't there. And I was like, right, that's the difference. That's a fact. Yeah. And I was like, that's the difference between a fact and um, saying, if you were to say there was no need for them to be nominated, 
that's sexist because that's an opinion. And he said, right, but what do you do when people think that their opinions are facts? <laughs> oh my, the mic drop. <laughs> and I was like, give me an example. And he's like, well, I'm sure that earlier in the 1900s or whatever, 1970s or whatever. I love that he thinks that those are the same thing. Anyway, I'm sure <laughs> that at some time a man would have said women just aren't capable. And he would have thought that was a fact. And I was like, true. And he's like, but that's sexist. And I was like, yes. And he's like, so how do you know what the sexist thing is if the facts are sexist sometimes? And I was like, this is like, yeah, man. <laughs> and I was like, no, and then we got into a really interesting talk because I was like, that's, this is exactly, and I was like, that's exactly what my brain chews over all the time. And I was like, and you're right. And I, and then we talked about this book because he was like, how do you know that you didn't write anything in there that's racist? And I was like, oh no, for sure I did. And he said, what do you mean? And I was like, I'm absolutely sure, Z. I'm absolutely sure that in two years or 10 years or 15 years, someone is going to look back at some chapter of this and say, can you believe she wrote this? And we thought it was enlightened or something at the time. And they're going to be furious and they should be because there's, there's some way in which someone will find something in this book that is sexist or racist or something because I'm continually unpacking the things that I didn't see, I didn't know, I didn't understand before. I'm continually figuring that out and figuring out, oh, I I was raised to not believe in myself in this and this way as a woman of color. I was raised to believe this thing and I, I took that in whole cloth. That is a medicine that I have been fed since I was little and I also believed that I was not capable or strong enough for this or that. I'm continually figuring out those points and then rethinking them, right? So like the idea the idea that you could ever build a perfect thing that would be none of those things, I think is ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as the idea of being woke. Like who, how can there really be woke? Um, there's only ever waking. There's only ever figuring it out. So, so when I said that, I was like, that's, that's exactly where I live. I live in that place. See, I live in the place of there's so many things that you will only learn in retrospect were wrongheaded. And he said, well, then, why even bother? Why would you even bother if that's really what it is? And I said, well, there's two answers to that. One is what choice is there? But the other is what a brilliant thing it is to be human and have that be your work in this world. Right? Like that's To ask questions of yourself and your beliefs and then have these mini leaps yeah. of just progress within your own mind. Right. Or compassion or learning. Yeah, or look back on something and say, I was wrong. I was wrong about that. This is another way. This is another way forward. This is another way to think about this and to put some of those things to rest, to put some of those doubts to rest, to put some of your own inhibitions to rest, to put some of the ways in which you do or don't handle other people's humanity well to lay those aside and try to do it differently. Like, I know it's weird, Burke, but also what joyful work. And like, who besides humans gets to do that? That's a really, that's kind of a brilliant part of the animal that we are, right? Like that's a kind of a great, that's kind of a pretty good voyage for a lifetime. That's the most beautiful place to end, I think. We okay, could great. go on forever. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Mira, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What really appreciate a it. beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for joining Mira and I in um, my tiny Brooklyn apartment for this conversation. I don't even know where to start about uh, what to get out of this episode. I think one of the parts I loved most was... Um, Mira's parents' relationship and just how that love can spark at any time and just her joy in retelling those stories, uh, particularly about her dad. 
Uh, let us know what you think. You can follow Mira at Mira Jacob. That's M I R A J A C O B. And on Instagram, she's at Good Talk Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Please share this episode if you really enjoyed it. And let me know what you think at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.